Hi, everybody, and welcome to Agitator. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Kelby Losak. And we have a very special guest on the show today, my good friend, four-time JDO show appearance. <laughs> first time, first time agitator, agitator, Mr. Scott Adlerberg, the author of Graveyard Love, Jack Waters, Spiders and Flies, and Jungle Horses. I can't I have to remember the ones that came out on Broken River, or I would be <laughs> that's, that's very all, embarrassed. Yeah, that's right. You should know uh, that. I should know that. We're going to talk about 1964's Onibaba, black and white erotic horror from Japan. I know that the first time, I, I just watched it last night, but I'd watched it years ago. They showed it somewhere, I think at the Jap Japan Society in New York. I'd heard about it. It's a classic Japanese film. So maybe 20 some odd years, 20 years ago, whatever it was. And it's a classic. And, you know, I knew it as, the, as that. And I went in not knowing much about the story the plot anything like that and i found it to be on you know on first viewing and second viewing but i found it on that first viewing to be absolutely like a riveting film to be really a riveting film it's got an extreme very simple plot that's one thing i think yeah. that makes it very striking it's it's a timeless story it's set in medieval japan 1400s when there's a war going on, you know, I have taken read a little on Japanese history, but I'm hardly an expert. So I just, you know, whatever's going on, it's like, that's what happened. It's partly an historical drama, partly a horror story for sure, horror movie, especially as it gets towards the end. And I just found it to be an, an elemental kind of atavistic portrayal yeah. of people, two women who are killing soldiers in the middle of this war to survive, a mother and her daughter-in-law. And it's a very simple story, but it's it's absolutely timeless. It could be taking place anytime, anywhere. And it's interesting to talk about it now, like well, that's happening when there's a, war, a horrible war going on. You know, variations of this have happened forever in human history. And that's what I found, found you know, one of the most compelling things about the movie. And it has an ending, which we can get into detail which leaves you very, un, very disturbed and kind of unnerving because it's a kind of, un, there's no total resolution at the end. And you leave like, eh. I didn't expect point. it to stop there when it, no, when it not actually at all. ends. Not at all. I was not like, all. oh, that's it. Okay, right. cool. Yeah, well, we can it's definitely very get abrupt to that. End. Yeah. And that was, so that was my first impression. Yeah, really, you know, uh, an hour and 40 minutes of riveting. You know, really, it lived up to the hype. Let's put it that way. Totally. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, Kelby, you have a history with this movie, didn't you say you watched it with your mom or something? <laughs> no, my uh, my grandmother is like oh. an OG uh, film pirate. And she has like this large collection of VHS tapes of, you know, just recording off of the TV and whatever. So she had like all these like Showtime, PBS, HBO, whatever <laughs> movies just recorded. And none of them would like make sense. She'd just have a tape, fill it up and then put a new yep. tape in. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like Star Wars, Jewel of the Nile, uh, Risky Business. <laughs> and like this was probably either after indiana jones or star wars on one of those tapes oh talk about much... montage you know cutting from one thing to another <laughs> right right yeah yeah and i would always just watch i wasn't really curious about her collection when i was young i would just watch like star wars and indiana jones basically but one time i let the tape keep rolling or i fell asleep or something and this was on afterwards and i was like okay what the fuck is this and uh 
as a kid, I definitely like my memory of the movie was definitely the latter half of it. You know, all the horror, the mask stuff and everything. Mm. This time around, though, I was like really into how for one, how much it resonates, like how timeless of a movie it is, because it felt like a ton of parallels to today was going on. You know, I'm just I'm like basically I'm, I'm robbing the grocery store every time I go and fucking, you know, trying to put four dollars a gallon of gas in my car. And, uh, you know, they're like killing samurai and the reeds and robbing them of their armor. And I'm like, I fuck with that. I feel that. But uh, it is a very simple story. But it, it's also one of those um, one of those movies that's kind of like split up into genres the same way it split up into acts where it's like it's sort of a crime movie. And then it's this not necessarily a romance, but sort of like this passionate erotica. And then and then a horror film by the end of it. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah, you start off with the deep dark hole. That's the uh, op- yeah, that, the opening titles. There's, I, there's a hole that's been in the earth since the ancient times. Right, it I is a deep that and dark I hole. It, it came back. It was like what a I mean, you're 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 hooked right off the bat. You know. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you really are. Yeah. And the Freudian aspect of that is not lost on me because no. you know the the the, 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 the constant. The constant stabbing and falling into holes in this movie is yeah. extremely blatant. I mean, Sexual there's frustration just and all of it, right. constant penetration, right? Yes. And a lot of penis metaphors. There's a scene where the mother character attempts to seduce a man and he turns her down. And while the guy is having sex with her daughter-in-law, she's humping a tree and the camera lingers on the tree like it kind of goes up and up the trunk and you're like okay yeah i see what's going on here right so this movie has a lot of that dreamlike uh kind of sexual imagery something that i that came to mind is that they often say when you have water in your dream it's a sex metaphor as well and a lot of this takes place they're right on this beautiful river Mm. where she's out like the women are always gathering water and the kind of uh, lecherous dude is fishing and, you know, and stabbing soldiers and things like that. So, yeah, lots of sex stuff, a surprising amount of boobs in it, too. I'm thinking about that, Kobe I, as a kid. I, that's, a, exactly, that's a good point. I'd forgotten <laughs> that. Um, well, I think that they very casually have a lot of, you know, when the, when the two women are sleeping in their hut, right? They, they, they're basically sleeping and it's very natural. I mean, that is how you would, you know, you would sleep. I guess it's warm. They don't have anything covering their breasts and stuff, but I, it's another thing. I don't know. I've been sort of long time. I've completely forgotten that. And that's also, I think like a product of the sixties where around the world, whether it's France, new wave, United States, you just had this sort of, you know, more open, representation of physical of physical bodies of sexuality and it's not it's not sort of you know gratuitous or lecherous but yeah i mean as a kid you'd be like wow look at them seeing some i'm seeing some tits here but yeah that was that was also interesting it's very casual <laughs> yeah. the way it's done it really is you know, you, know, you said you said as a kid i'm 35 i was like all right let's go <laughs> 
<laughs> it, it's I, i'm surprised i didn't remember there being that much nudity in it because probably because of how casual it was like yeah it, it's just like yeah they're you know they're just naked yeah. and that is it is coming like a decade off of like u.s occupation too and i'm not sure how much i know there was like a lot of censorship of like what you could talk about with the war and stuff obviously but like I don't know how far those censors went. It's very, no, it's very interesting you mentioned that, Kel, because there's a great book. I was checking it out again today. And we had this guy actually at Brian Park for the film talks. Um, if you ever want to, you guys would both love this book. It's, it's, a, it's a book called Shocking Representation. And it's a, um, about horror films in the wake of World War II. And he, the, the author picks a horror film from each country which, however, obliquely kind of reflects where the country is after World War II. And at that time, France, he talks about, you know, eyes without a face. England, it's peeping Tom. United States, it's not so much World War II, but Vietnam. And he talks about Last House on the left. And he has a whole chapter devoted to Onibaba and how it's commentary in certain ways on Hiroshima and war. And really? Japan. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, if you want me to, where, where does the Hiroshima come in? I, yeah, I don't. I'm not getting the Hiroshima metaphor. Uh, basically, what what he sort of gets into is after you know, there's been a debate. Apparently, I mean, I guess there was a debate at some point in Japan how to talk about Hiroshima and what happened. And I guess the most common, ver famous version everyone knows is Godzilla. You know, the, the monster movies. That's sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, which is allegory. Clearly, obviously, it's not realistic. And those movies from certain critics came in for a lot of criticism because, like, let's talk about Hiroshima directly, you know, instead of, like, putting it in the form of a monster movie. Uh, they couldn't be that direct, as, as Kelby was alluding to. That's what sort of sent me off on this. After, right after World War II, up until about 52, 53, when the U.S. was occupying Japan, MacArthur was in charge, and they had strict censorship of Japanese films and what could be said especially about the bombings. And there were a few films, there were films Japan made. I don't know, there was one I never saw where, you know, they, Nagasaki's were looted and they would, they had to strip back a lot of the script. And in the end, it's like a love story where Nagasaki's the backdrop. There was very strict censorship. But by the time this film came along, the, the U.S. was more or less out of there and they could make the films they want. But one of the things that was that sort of Japan sort of did in their films was they kind of, how would they put it? You know, Japan was torn between, they're the victims of the worst atrocity in history, the bomb, twice. Uh, so they're victims in that sense. But they were victims after they had plundered and victimized all of Asia and did horrible atrocities themselves. And how do they yeah. depict this? And the way they kind of sort of would do it very often is they would sort of have a lot. Of, they had this whole genre where women in Japan were all where the representation of Japanese victimhood and they were always sort of soft and victimized and kind of they were portrayed in this way in movie after movie. The women are pure and they're the sort of that's the Japanese, the Japan we would prefer to present Japan as victim, even though. Until Nagasaki, Japan fucking raped and destroyed everybody in, in, in Asia. They were hard. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. yeah, for sure. Everybody knows that. Right. And the emperor is like half and half. The emperor, whatever he did, he was there when they were plundering everybody. But after World War II, the U.S. and 
we're still going to stick to the emperor. Now he's like a pacifist. So it was, a, it was kind of this dichotomy. What he talks about is in this movie, it's one of the first movies where it kind of scrambles everything. The women are not portrayed. They are kind of victims because like the guy, they lost, the mother lost their son. The daughter-in-law lost their husband. They're surviving in a world that's very masculine oriented, but they're not just victims because they go out and they just kill people and they drop <laughs> them in a hole. And he talks about uh, in Japan, this was very recognized as like, this is really interesting because it's grappling with Japan's historical trauma of, you know, are we the victims or are we the victimizers or are we both? And the women in the movie in particular, like sort of sc scramble a code the way the Jap Japanese, you know, they, they didn't have movies where J Japanese women up to that point were going out and like killing people. And it's like, what's his name? Mich um, Michiguchi and some of the other Japanese directors have you know, great portrayals of women, always kind of passive, sympathetic. These women are not that. They're not passive. They are somewhat sympathetic in certain ways, but they're not passive. And he also mentions how the mask in particular, when they take off the mask of the, of the samurai, when she kills uh, the samurai, yeah, looks yeah, exactly yeah. Like, a, like a Hiroshima burn victim. And she does right. also when the mask comes off. And anyone in Japan would have recognized that in a second. You know, I'm Mr. That's Handsome. He keeps saying he missed it. And he takes, and he doesn't just look bad. He looks like someone who went through radiation. And so does she. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it also, it also brings to mind the fact that the movie feels very empty. We, we never see big battles in this, even though a war is going on. Mm. We see the stragglers. We see, it's always, you know, at the beginning of the film, it's two guys who are kind of limping along. They've clearly been injured and they're trying to escape from people on horseback. And then they're murdered by the women. And then there are two guys who have taken their battle far from the battlefield mm. and go into some water and they're trying to hit each other with swords. And then they go up to the bank and say, you know, hey, please help me. And then they get speared and drowned and all that kind of stuff but the movie overall feels like these are besides a few bit players these are largely the only people in the world it's very desolate it's a very empty world yeah it is it's it's a purgatory like they keep alluding to mm. yeah it's interesting so the movie basically for listeners who might not have have seen it i think that we've had pretty good context clues so far about what what it's about but essentially where the movie really gets cooking is a guy named Hachi shows up who was the brother in arms best friend of the mother character's son and the daughter-in-law's husband and that guy has been reported dead they allude the mother alludes to the idea that he might not be dead that this guy might be lying and I like that they leave that ambiguous because I prefer ambiguity in movies just overall I, I like it when they bring up these kind of things and then never address them but this guy is, you know, as he says in the movie, he's a red-blooded male. And so he's looking to get laid and he's got his eyes on the daughter-in-law. And what begins is a kind of sexually tense triangle where the mother seems jealous of his affections for her, mixed in with some resentment about the fact that that's her allegedly deceased son's wife. And so that kicks off all this kind of you know, the daughter-in-law starts sneaking out to have sex with them and she's and kind of following and watching. Not just jealousy, but 
She says point blank, if I if you take my daughter-in-law away, how am I going to survive? Like the daughter-in-law right. have a thing going where they kill, like you said earlier, they kill samurai soldiers who happen to stray into their area, dump them in this hole, and then they sell what they take from the samurai, the dead samurai soldiers on the black market to somebody nearby, their their armor and their weapons and whatever. But, you know, she does say to the to Hachi a couple of times, why don't you sleep with me? I, it seems like it's more like to just to distract him from the daughter-in-law. But I think I got the sense that she's also just scared of like her daughter. She says her daughter-in-law is like all I have and that's how I survive. And you could just hold off until the war ends and I can start farming again. And I can make a living on my own. But as long as this war is going on, I need my daughter-in-law to live, to survive. Mm -hmm. You know, can you just keep your dick in your pants until the war ends? We don't know when the war is going to end. And he know. says, he says, no, I cannot do that. Says, no, <laughs> as most males probably, unfortunately, would. <laughs> and by the way, if it seems like we are, uh, you know, struggling for names here, they are listed in the cast as Kichi's mother and Kichi's wife, which I thought right. was interesting. They the don't mother, have names. The mother actually was, I think it's the mother. I got to check in this book. It was mentioned in this book, was, was the director's wife at the time. And they have, right. and also, by the way, I think both the mother, I mean, tell me if you agree, the mother and the daughter in law have fantastic faces. It's a very visual movie. You feel yeah. that's another thing we should mention. Like, it starts yeah. out with visual and the sound, also the use of sound, like when she's running through the weeds every time, those reeds. It's dialogue, but there's not a ton of dialogue in this movie. It's really a cinema lover's movie in terms of just visual and use of sound. And they talk when they need to talk and no more. I mean, would you agree? I mean, it really is that kind of movie, which is great. It really is. Except for when um, Hachi first comes to the village and he's describing how the world is crazy and everything. And they're talking about, I've seen a black sun. And he's like, I saw a yeah. horse give birth to a calf. That was a scene that stuck with me, like on a dialogue level. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe yeah, that was like another one. I don't know. Like Hiroshima kind of, I've seen a black sun. I've seen a horse give birth to a kid. Nature is totally out of whack. What the hell's right? That? You know, that, that, that could have been like, an, uh, you know, to a Japanese audience at the time, Mount Deformity is the name of the game. That's that would probably strike a chord, I would think. Definitely st struck a chord for today, too. <laughs> yes, yeah, everything is any, all anytime since Hiroshima strikes a chord. Yeah, but yeah, you know, black sun definitely strikes a chord. You know, what else are you talking about? Really? Black rain. I've been, I've been hearing recently people say things, especially on Twitter, to the effect of time feels weird. Everybody says, oh, time is all out of whack. And to that, I say, well, you have an IV drip of cortisol pumping into your veins at all times. <laughs> so so time is going to seem a little fucking weird. But yeah, no, that um, that scene is interesting because it pulls double duty. It sets an ominous tone for the rest of the movie. Uh, but it also makes Hachi come off as this kind of bullshit artist. And I like the fact that he... You know, you mentioned that the the women in this movie look great. I think he looks great too. And I mm. I wish that more modern movies got strange looking actors and actresses mm -hmm. to play these roles, you know? Because I think that a big problem with movies for me is when somebody is too movie star good looking, it like, it pulls me out of the movie. A completely unrelated film, but I watched Sicario recently and it, you know, Emily Blunt, Benicio Del Toro, and Josh Brolin are all good-looking people, but they look interesting. 
enough, right? Like they're, they're kind of off. They, they look like they could be regular people except for like maybe Brolin. Brolin looks like a cartoon. In, in fact, he was a cartoon. He was a cartoon. Uh, that's the, Avengers, the, uh, Avengers in the movies. Right? The ultimate villain or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, you go to movies like this and you realize like, oh, actors seem to used to be chosen, well, maybe in the case of Kichi's mother, maybe because she was the director's wife, maybe. But well, she I was mean, an actress before that, I mean. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. they're fascinating looking people. I couldn't even yeah. tell the, uh, Kichi's wife. I at first, I I thought she was a young boy when I was when the yeah, the yeah. very first shot of the movie and they're gathering water together, I was like, oh, it's like a mother and her son, and then I suddenly realized, oh, okay, this is a this is a girl. But yeah, no, just I, I wish we got more of that these no, days. I, I wish I, we got I, more weird looking people. My the, my well, this is a kind of quick sideline, but my my bones to pick with things like that now is less what you, I mean, what you're saying. I I agree with you. I mean, what you're saying I think is true. It's just that everyone's too fit now. Everyone is so fit. Yeah, yeah. And that's just not accurate. I mean, it, it, I know it's movies and stuff, but even Lost, which I love, you know, every, they've been on the island for three years. Everyone looks fantastic physically. Yeah, exactly. They had some weird looking people. Yeah. They didn't all look beautiful. I mean, that's fine. But they're all, they're all, everyone's on their off time. Everyone's working out, you know, and that's, it just doesn't. Yeah. And you see that everywhere. And that's just, right. you know, but anyway. Um, and Hachi looks, he's not exactly, uh, no. he's not buff and he's not, no, I, he didn't, he didn't strike me as even handsome. He kind of looks like, you know, like he, he's kind of the only game in town. I think is I, the idea. Totally is the only, that I think that was totally the idea. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so. he's been there for a couple of years without a husband or any man, from what we can gather. So, I mean, short of a leper, which Hachi is not, why wouldn't she? You know, why wouldn't she want to hook up with the guy? Right. That would be great. Yeah. That'd be great if all men just died and it was just me walking around, like the only game in town. <laughs> That'd be so sick. <laughs> Maybe I could make that work. I could be like, baby, look, it's. I mean, look at these poor women. Like you just see everybody looking like a babushka and like, we're so cold. We need the touch of a man. And I'm like, I have to do my, I have to do my duty. But what's interesting to me. So I was thinking about this actually in relation to quiet on, which is a similar uh, era of Japanese, uh, I guess. Quiet you call it fantastic. That's a great movie, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, what's One of the interesting? Most beautiful it's, color movies I think ever. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And what, what interests me about both of these movies is the horror element of it, which the mask is definitely spooky, but it's funny because I think we just, we get desensitized over time to what like truly terrifying things are. And it's funny because since it's based in the 1400s, you know, she's getting scared in the woods by this person who's clearly in a mask, right? Mm. But that might've worked. It brings to mind, you know, that that classic story of the the freight train, right? Of the freight train coming towards the screen in a movie theater mm-hmm. and people running away. I'm not sure if that's right. apocryphal or not. I, I don't, like, what did you guys think of the horror elements of this? Were you guys like, ooh, this is scary? Yeah, no, I mean, it's not visceral, scary like things are today. But I thought I thought that the film, as a horror buff, pretty, I think I have a pretty high tolerance and stuff and everything, that since it, it does come late and there's a buildup and you're totally invested in the story and the characters and everything, the way it's done, it had that effect, that effect of like the classic uncanny. I mean, I didn't jump out of my seat or something, but it was very, it was spooky. It was eerie. And it, you're, now you're invested in the characters. So when that, the samurai is the first guy who appears with the mask and it does kind of appear like out of nowhere. She opens the door or something and he's standing there. 
And I thought it was very, I thought it was effective. And also like the talk, it was uncanny in the sense like a normal voice is talking and you see this, that's always, there's always going to be something about that that's a little bit uncanny or, or eerie, I thought. I, that was my opinion. I, I thought it held up. I mean, I really did. Yeah, yeah. Sort of a scary by deception. But like mm. that, that's not right. <laughs> this is yes, un, it's not this right. is unsettling because that's that's not right. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. And the the sound has a lot to do with it too. And the the consistency, like throughout the movie, like you said, it's building up to this, even though watching it, if you don't look at the cover of the movie or know anything about it, you wouldn't know what's coming. But like there is a build up like with them saying these weird apocalyptic things at the at the dinner at the beginning and the sound the way that it's like you hear all the the crunching of the grass and you can't see anything beyond the reeds and sort of the eerie soundtrack and you know there there's like a, a tension building up this sort of like sexual frustration sort of tension but also this like tension of the need to survive and then when like these internal horrors all of a sudden become like boom like something actually spooky in front of your face it is just like like no not jump out of your seat like oh my god this is a scary movie now but like very unsettling unsettling no, that's a good word i agree you know I, that's a, that's exactly how i felt yeah and I do think the scene, too, when the mother, you know, the older woman, when she can't get the mask off, first of all, you didn't expect that to happen. You know, I, that whole that whole sequence, actually, you know, this this is so the audience knows I don't want to give too much away, but she does something and then she realizes what she's done has failed. And when she watches, she sees that what she's done has failed, you know, and the daughter-in-law and, the, and Hachi have sex anyway. The body language of the mother is so poignant. I mean, you see her in the weeds just sort of like shrink. She tried everything. It didn't work. And then when she's ready to like accept everything that the daughter-in-law, you must accept my terms. And she can't get the, the mother-in-law can't get the mask off. That was, that was upsetting. I thought, I mean, she yeah. wasn't evil. It was such person. a switch. Yeah. It was such <laughs> a, know, it was such a switch know. from, from her kind of commanding, uh, you know, den mother, Right, uh, mother hen kind of thing to all of a sudden this whimpering child who just yeah. can't get the mask off face. Shout out to R.L. Stein, by the way. I see where you ripped that off from, son. I, I said the haunted <laughs> mask, something like that. <laughs> the, ha- the haunted mask, bro. It's a it's uh, a, about a mask that sticks on your face, and you, you have to. Yeah. It's got a great twist at the end of it too. It was one of my favorites. I read this book when I was like. Oh, probably like 21. It was like the best horror. No, I'm just kidding. I was like eight years old when I read (laughs) The the Haunted Mask. But like, (laughs) basically, she gets a mask at some kind of mogwai shop, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, the owner tells her, you know, be very careful. Don't don't put it on or it'll stick to your face or some shit. (laughs) And so she puts it on. She can't get it off. And, you know, teenage girl. Uh, you know, finally she finds out that there's like the power of love takes the mask off or something. Mm. But the trick is that you, once you take the mask off, the next person who puts that shit on is <clears throat> going to be stuck in it forever. There's nothing mm. you can do. Well, she's got an annoying little brother, right? And the book <laughs> ends 
with her like in bed being like, ah, and her annoying little brother walks in and says, look, I got your mask. And he's, oh he's got goodness. it on or whatever. It's a, it's a great <laughs> twist. It's a that legitimately. A as an eight-year-old, that would be really scary. I can see that. Oh, dude. I, I used to get those books at the Scholastic Book Fair, man. It was so, like, I was always looking forward to like, you know, the ooze beneath the sink or the abominable <laughs> snowman of Pasadena or whatever. It's fucking great, dude. One of my favorite bits of this movie, which I I actually thought was was funny, was how horny everybody gets. So when they are in heat, and it's the <laughs> amount of times that sex is compared to to like the mother literally says like he's in heat, he's going after you like a dog goes after a bitch. It's it's all these like like this rutting idea. But whenever they can't take it anymore, they just kind of run through the reeds screaming at the top. They're just like ah. And I, I, I personally can relate to that for sure. <laughs> no, but you know what? You know what? What's interesting is like I don't know. You don't see. I don't know. I have to think. Give it a lot of thought. But off the top of my head, um, you know, most movies that are in any way about war show either or they show they don't get into sex at all. You know, they just show you know killing a, a war, or they show soldiers whoring around and, you know, finding problems, that kind of thing, which is not, which happens, obviously. But they don't, not many movies I can think of off the top of my head show, not the soldiers, not the, you know, blah, 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 but these kind of people on the fringes of the war trying to survive. And that's probably a byproduct of war is like, yeah, there aren't enough people around for sex. I mean, for sexual, mm -hmm. to, to release sexual needs and desires right. and sexual desire not in the soldiers who have other things going on with their sexual desire you know they they have and they're getting out there their jollies killing and having sex but regular people you don't see that very often in movies and it, it, that's true it's kind of funny the way they're running through the weeds but that was interesting i mean that's something you don't see sure. that often where normal human needs aren't fulfilled because there's nobody around like you said it's so barren because of a mm -hmm. war, you know? Mm -hmm. and yeah, the, uh, it reminds me actually when now that you mentioned that you don't normally see the people who are affected by the war, it's normally told from the perspective of soldiers. It brings to mind Grave of the Fireflies, which is an oh, anime, yeah. which is one of the most heartbreaking and depressing movies right. I've ever seen in my yeah, entire life, which is about, you know, yeah. two children in the wake of the. Hiroshima bomb actually trying right. to survive and you know the little girl's making mud pies and she thinks that they're rice because she's starving to death it's it's a movie that I've seen once and might not watch again because it's, <laughs> it's that kind of that kind of difficult to to do but um yeah I wonder that that is an interesting because I can't think of very many others and I have to just assume that on a certain level uh you know, I, you know how I am, Scott. I always put things in terms of like, oh, is this like propaganda? Is the CIA infiltrated Hollywood and make, <laughs> yes, what makes yeah. us want I'm, war and stuff? I'm aware. And, yes, I'm aware. and there's, a, there's, a part of, <laughs> there's a part of me, right? There's a part of me that, that does think that that's a part of it. There's definitely CIA money in Hollywood. I mean, look at Jack Ryan and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. also, also, here's been my light bulb moment recently. And that is that human beings regardless of the cia or any kind of propaganda human beings love war and killing a lot of humans love that shit so it's also i think the most marketable thing 
You know, I think people are like, who wants to watch a story of refugees or people trying to survive? Oh, we no, want to no. see heroes well, like killing each war, other. I mean, war inherently is a very dramatic situation. So as drama, you know, I mean, I, you know, yeah. I think that that's for sure. And there's a reason why, you know, Coppola, Kubrick, well, Oliver Stone was actually, you know, give him his credit there. He actually was in the war. But there's a reason why a lot of people gravitate to making war movies because it, it is inherent. If you do a halfway decent job, it's exciting. The other stuff's hard. Like you just said, it's hard to get across. You know, it's hard to, um, it's not as inherently dramatic. Um, you know, Apocalypse Now, that scene with the prostitutes and they come down in the helicopter and they're playing that music, whatever, you know, and, and stuff. Um, that's, it's not easy to do. It's a great movie, but you know, it's the, the material is there. This kind of material is hard, I think is a more, it's hard to do. You don't see it as often, probably because it's not as inherently cinematically dramatic. I mean, that would be my yeah. explanation, you know, explanation. Cinematically dramatic is, an, is a good way of saying it because I would have said interesting. And it is interesting. It's just harder to depict on film. But this movie has some great shots. I think how pretty it is really helps it. Um, my favorite shot, I think, in the whole movie, it's, it seems like a simple one, but it's where... The original uh, soldier who's wearing the Oni, Oni, not the Onibaba. Onibaba means old hag. The scary demon mask. Um, yeah, the Hanya. Okay, Hanya. Thank you. They're walking through the reeds and he's like walking behind her. And he's got this big old badass uh, Naginata, that spear, like that big pole arm that has a spear mm -hmm. on the end of it. Mm -hmm. And it just looks fucking cool. It's just a badass shot. And that move, this movie is full of that. It's just, yeah, it's all black and white. I mean, I think also one thing I like, I didn't notice it more this time around, maybe than the first time, you know, seeing it again, is I love, really love stories. It only really has three main characters. So that's always interesting. But is a story where you have, you know, however many characters, here you have three major characters, three main characters, and no one is really the villain. Everyone has like that, the quote, the cliche, everyone has their reasons. That's easier said than done. Usually in most movies, somebody is wrong in some way or they go a little over. Here, no one, even, I don't think the mother, no one's a villain here. Hachi certainly isn't. The daughter-in-law, you can't, it certainly isn't. And I don't even think the mother-in-law is. She's, she's actually, you know, what she does with the mask and, and stuff, she does more from fear she's going to lose her daughter-in-law and lose her sustenance or whatever than she does from malevolence. And I, you don't, that's another thing which you don't see, you see it sometimes, but you don't see that often. You know, there was a, I think Dave, we might've talked about this in our crime talks, but one of my favorite quotes ever by any crime writer or anyone was Ruth Rendell said like, more crimes are committed out of fear. Someone's afraid of something, losing a lover, covering up something covering up money, covering up something I did wrong, I'm gonna lose my friend, then actual evil. In real life, that's probably true. I and mean, when you watch these Kroom Chime shows, which are depressing, usually someone's just fucking scared of something and they do something really stupid. You know, and there are, you know, evil people, like serial killer, serial, but most crimes people are scared and they do something dumb and horrible. And this movie was more like that than one person was bad. And that's, I, I love that. I mean, you just don't see it. You don't see it enough where it's like she had a point. The daughter-in-law had a point. Hachi had a point, And yet it still turned out to be a screw up. <laughs> it turned out to be a disaster. 
mm-hmm. and no one was really wrong per se. That was my take on it. I mean, you know, does anybody know? Does anybody know why the mask sticks to people's faces? Is that is, well, is she there... said the rain? I mean, that was her. That was her. They gave a semi-logical. Tried to give There's a some kind of lore to it, though. Is there some kind of Japanese tale Maybe. that audiences would have recognized? In the movie, they give like the semi. They try to give the semi-rational. Like she said, the rain. She said that a couple of times. The rain is mm-hmm. sticking. But there probably is some legendary kind of reason, you know, a mythical kind of reason. Or There's something interesting about the mask sticking Where what you pretend to be and you could be. That's exactly what I was going to say. Exactly yeah. That. yeah, yeah, that me- that metaphor right. of, you know, the lo- how long you pretend to be something, that's actually what you Become. end up becoming, right. right? Which I'm not really sure how that fits into the theme of the movie because none of them are, are really pretending per se in the movie. Um, but that's, that's 100% the metaphor that I was getting from it that, you know, if you put the mask, like, cause she puts the mask on three times, it's the classic rule of threes. Oh, right? was it three? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And the third time is the time that it sticks. And mm. interestingly enough, that's also the time that it fails. Uh, cause it works the first two times she scares the girl off and the guy's yeah. kind of left with blue balls and he's like, where is she? And then he goes <laughs> yeah. out and he actually, he, ch- he, he starts chopping reeds and he cuts his own hand open and starts drinking the blood. Oh it was- <laughs> Freud would have a field day with this movie. There's so much displacement. It's the, I can't have sex tonight. I'm going to chop reeds. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to hit the reeds and I'm going to drink my own blood. That's a, uh, that's really dramatic. Let's you know? oh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. masturbate like that. You know, if you can't, then just... that's what I was thinking. I was like, dude, just beat <laughs> off, man. Come on. Like you're in the reeds alone. Nobody's watching. I like, know. You're good. They couldn't quite do that. Maybe in the six, they did show the breast, but they couldn't quite go that far. I guess. I don't, you know, yeah. That yeah. would be the well, normal reaction. They could have shown something. They could have shown like a, yeah, yeah. I don't know, a fish jumping out of the water or something. <laughs> like, exactly. It could have been the Freudian, the Freudian <laughs> bit there. Yeah, I think that the things, the message with the mask or the metaphor of the mask is kind of taking place behind the scenes with what they were trying to say with like with with the bombings and every and uh, their existential history and everything, because it's also the that idea of you becoming the thing you pretend to be or you masquerade around as is kind of what they're wrestling with. Right. Like, are we big and bad are we victims are we you know we got to put this put this mask on and how far is too far when the you know the mask doesn't come off or once it does come off you know there's something ugly underneath it now oh interesting so like they put that they kept putting the mask on and and like and eventually it got them bombed is that what you mean like they kept uh adopting this uh scary aggressive warlike persona and when it came down to it, they, they ended up paying for it in their, in their own way. Is that what you mean? It's, I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's no, because when you, you know, I think that's true because when you think of what she, the mother-in-law was saying at the end, she says several times, even at the end, when she's chasing the daughter-in-law across the weeds and they come to the hole, you know, I'm not a demon. I'm a human being. I'm not a demon. I'm a human being. Cause after she takes, after the daughter-in-law's, I'm saying this for the audience, but you know, after the daughter-in-law strip, take get manages to get the mask off her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law looks horrible, like a like a not like a Nagasaki or Hiroshima victim. Her face is horrible; it's been deformed somehow. 
and the daughter-in-law runs away saying you're a demon. So you're not sure whether the daughter-in-law just thinks she looks bad or she really thinks she's a demon. And the mother-in-law is like, I'm not a demon, I'm a person. And maybe that, that kind of line, I'm not a demon, I'm a human being resonated, kind of like what you were saying, Kelby. At the time, you know, the Japanese did all these horrible things. And yet after Akasaki, are they, you know, we're not demons, we're people. <laughs> we just right. lost. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's right. You know, um, that's interesting. That's yeah. interesting. So I have a question that I like asking guests. Some of the answers we've gotten are really good. And some of them are just like, uh, yeah, no, I like Japanese movies a lot. But <laughs> can you tell Kelby and I and the listeners just a little bit about your relationship with Japanese film? And, you know, are you a fan of it? Uh, uh, maybe some favorite directors. This is the the general salon for broad oh. Japanese film topic topics. Sure, sure. Uh, yes, I mean, I do like a lot of, I do like Japanese cinema very much. I think one thing, I don't know, might be a little, that's a little curious or interesting is as much as I'm a film buff, film nut, for some reason, I didn't come to Ikira Kurosawa until I was well into my 30s. I mean, I'd mm -hmm. seen one or two of his early films in college and stuff. I don't know why, whatever. I don't know, you'd say, ah, Kurosawa, yeah, everyone says he's so great. And then in my 30s, I saw Seven Samurai, a whole bunch of them, Seven Samurai, High and Low. and they were, you know, seven, they were, they're great movies. Um, to this day, my favorite Kurosawa film, I mean, a lot of great directors, so I'll get beyond Kurosawa, but my favorite Kurosawa film to this day is Dersu Usala. I mean, which is the one, if you guys have seen that about? No, uh, no. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. I can't tell you how much. I mean, Seven Samurai and some of those, they're all great, they're great films. I mean, it's flawless. It's made in 1972 in Russia, and it's, okay. it's based on a Russian novel. It's about this Russian explorer from Russia who goes to Japan, and he runs into this very eccentric sort of forest, Japanese forest man who everyone makes fun of, and they think he's a doofus. And the relationship between the Russian guy and Dersu Utsala is it's one of the most beautiful things. It's fantastic. And the photography and everything it's set in the wilds of Siberia. It's, oh, uh, it won the Oscar for that. Even if it's not like an obscure film, I mean, it's fantastic. I love also, I love Shoei Imamura. If you have mm -hmm. Vengeance is yep. Mine, about the serial, right. one of the most famous serial killers. That is the, that is the film school that uh, Miike went to. Was Imamura's film school? Imamura, yeah, no, he's and also which he uh, flunked out of, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Ballad of Narayama, which I think is one of the greatest uh, great films, um, which calls is about the sort of the legend of when your mother, when old people get old and useless, you have to take them up into the mountains to die, and you leave. Oh, them uh, yes, out. yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, and yeah. there's a it's the story of this guy. In this town, it's a whole, in this, you know, again, it's kind of medieval Japan, I guess. And his mother, who's not really like useless, but it, it's that it's about like how he winds up taking her into the, it's another one. It's really not sentimental, yeah. but the emotion, <laughs> you know, you leave I remember crying. that crying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that one. Yeah. That, that's, a, oh. that's a rough movie. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, very rough, but fantastic. And so those are like the classic Japanese, but I think I grew up more watching you know, some of those. Like Kurosawa, I didn't even grow up. I came too late. 
and anime. Like, Akira is one of my all-time favorite films. Uh, I've seen a lot of, I mean, tons of anime. But, and also, they have a whole string of, like, these pink films they did in, this, in the, you know, late 60s, which were basically like sexual exploitation films. Uh, I think the world of Japanese cinema is, is, is very, yeah, is fascinating. What yeah. separates it from American cinema? Is there anything in particular that, that stands I, out about I, Japanese I, I, cinema I just, as a whole? I guess it's, I mean, maybe as an American, you know, as a Westerner, as an American, I always get the sense like I'm just trying to, even as I'm watching a film I love, you're trying to penetrate sort of the codes and the, I don't know as much about the history. Like if I see a film set in medieval England or France, I'm not an expert, but you basically know the gist of what the history is. Sure, yeah. You know, or uh, anything said in the West, you basically know the gist of what happened and not every detail. And, and I did take a couple of courses in college even on Japanese history, but you know, you so, I don't know, I don't, just don't know nearly as much. So you're sort of like, that's, so you're sort of trying to penetrate like the code, the culture is different. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that. So it, yeah, that's, it's very that's a big thing for me for like yeah. Yakuza movies, you know, like the Yakuza, Yakuza gangster movies. movies. Right. Those, those movies, movie. right. oh, they, they, fa- they just, fascinate me. The other one I would say, if I had to pick one, is a Sage and Suzuki. The great, uh, you talk about yep. the Yakuza, oh, yeah. Yakuza brought it up. <laughs> you know, yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. And that that frenetic style, I mean, you can see that in even Tarantino. Uh, a lot of stuff kind of. Oh, totally. He loves, he loves um, yeah, yeah. He loves, he loves Sage and Suzuki. And what was mm-hmm. it? What's the one about, you know, the, the three serial, the three hitmen and, you know, the guy eats rice. Branded to kill. Branded to kill. I mean. That's where I, I don't know if you, you have because he made semi conventional Yakuza movies and then he makes a Yakuza movie in a, like 67 in black and white that totally like deconstructs, you, you know, Yakuza movie. It's a it's a completely crazy movie. I've never seen a movie like that since. And I, I think that's like he didn't get to make a movie after that for many years because it, it just bombed at the box office and stuff. And I think also, you know, you, you learn like the, this Japanese sense of aesthetics with they have a lot of confined spaces because like if it's a movie set in an mm-hmm. urban environment, it's not yep. a, it's a small country and they have, you know, the the the, 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 the um, what's the you know, the things they in rooms that divide rooms and stuff, um, the screens. And so even the way things are filmed are very different than what you would see here. That's something that that strikes you as you watch these kind of movies. Oh yeah. Like all the, all the Yakuza movies that we've talked about, uh, whether it's Agitator or Graveyard of Honor, all the Miike ones, what Miike is great at is showing Yakuza as a bunch of, you know, 20 something dudes who hang out in these tiny dingy little apartments, like small, small, small. And they all sit around a little table eating, you know, stir fry and drinking sake and bullshitting with each other. But the, the sense of confinement, um, right that that Miike is able to express because he shoots all of his movies in a, a very specific district of um right Shinjuku um, right Shinjuku yeah 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 and it's it's all the neon lights and you know these big bulbs that are flashing and you know and just this kind of sense that these guys are uh they make all their money in spurts right you know they do a deal they sell a bunch of coke or they they do a hit or they beat somebody up with a baseball bat 
And then once they've made that money, they kind of don't have anything else to do. Right? So they they just kind of hang out and he's great at capturing that kind of stuff. But I love the Yakuza, like the idea of criminals with, with codes, you know, even though the codes might be loose and being that they're crime films, usually they deal with people breaking those codes. Mm. Um, it's, it's just such an interesting, I, I, well, I guess if you think about it, the mafia has their, yeah, their yeah, no, sort of they codes have their, and right. stuff like but that. The, even if you know, like probably most people would come to a Japanese, a lot of Japanese Yakuza films, having seen mafia films or mafia shows at this point first. Um, it's interesting to compare, you know, however realistic they are, who the hell knows? You know, they glamorize, things are glamorized everywhere. It's always interesting to compare like, oh, I saw The Godfather, or if you're young, I saw The Sopranos. Then you see Yakuza film. I'm sure you, you're going to go in like comparing those criminal worlds. The code is one thing here. The code is one thing over there. Right. You yeah, know? Yeah. And uh, it seems like the, the, the code in particular leads people down these unstoppable paths towards killing themselves. Basically, right. there's something really compe- compelling about a world of criminals where if a line gets crossed, everybody dies, right? It's yeah, like a, yeah. it's like watching an hour and a half long Mexican standoff, like <laughs> go off. You know what I mean? Next week, we're talking to Jordan Harper. We're going to talk about Fukusaku's Yakuza papers. Um, oh, yeah. No, Fukusaku. So I wanted to, I'm, if, if, there's one, you know, if you guys can track it, if you want to, you know, have me back and talk about talk about something you might have seen it but if you haven't the one ja- one japanese film i would recommend and it's one film i probably never would really probably not want to see again it's a bru- it's a really harrowing film have either of you seen united red army no you've ever heard of this film? okay it's like uh-huh. three hours it's about three hours long and it was directed by koji wakamutsu he had been a sort of fellow traveler of the united red army which is the, like the Japanese version in the late 60s, early, very early 70s of like the, of, um, the Red Army faction, you know, like in Germany and in Italy, the Red Brigade. This was a real thing. And it's, it's, it basically begins in the late 60s, kind of semi-documentary when there was, like everywhere in the world, there was a lot of student protests and stuff. And after all these things sort of broke out and how it sort of fell out, a group of the most hardcore Red Army faction Japanese group went into the mountains in Japan, about, I don't know, 20 of them, and holed up and went through a severely, under the guise of the leader and his girlfriend, who was really like psychotic, fiercely Maoist sort of self-examination uh, and like by the end of it, seven of them were left. The others were killed by the other members. They were put out in the snow. This is all real. Absolutely right. not. Yeah. One of them, a couple of them were forced to punch themselves in the face until they were because they were too pretty. Finally, the police sort of came on to them and they wound up having on live TV this like they took over this sort of ski lodge in the winter in remote Japan. And on live TV, everybody in Japan watched for like four or five hours as the police and the army raided this place. They took hostages. That's the movie. It's unbelievable. It's one of the few. I left. It, it showed in New York City many if some some years ago, and it was going to be there like one day. And I like played hooky from work. I left at one o'clock because I was like, I gotta go. <laughs> I'm gonna go see this movie. And I'd heard about it. Try to track it down. And then if you do, we should talk about it. It's un- It's fantastic. But really, like something you want to see once and never see again. 
Not that it's so, you know, like you see things and everything. It's just really, really disturbing and, and harrowing. Yeah, Probably yeah. like what happened in real life. Right. Like the, the pure, the fanaticism of the, of the political, you know, of, the, of this group and what they did to themselves. But it's brilliant, brilliant. I'm not surprised they never got a release, a full release here. But, yeah. um, and the director had made like pink movies and Yakuza movies, but apparently he was, tangentially connected with that group. So he sort of knew what he was talking about. Oh, that's awesome. This movie 30, 40 years after the fact, you know. Um, right. And you look it up, you'll see. And it's like a very, the, the whole thing was the, all like is very well known in Japan. And then this final shootout and hostage situation was on Japanese TV for like live for six hours. You know, like OJ Simpson's, you know, run to the border 10 times that, you know, everyone knows about it. That was one of the highest rated television, I guess, Program saw, broad, broadcasts. He interrupted broadcasts. the Knicks and the Houston Rockets in the finals. That greedy son of a bitch. Yeah. Now they. Uh, yeah. That was one of the <laughs> highest ones. It's all like. Uh, it's interesting. It's I was all. I was. The Knicks. I gotta get yeah, watch was, OJ Simpson and his problems. I was looking at this today, and the the first one is the Apollo Eleven landing. Mm. That's the mm. highest rated broadcast of all time, and then. Yeah. uh super bowls it's it's mostly super bowls and super then bowls, yeah. the uh the season finale of mash is in there too oh my god yeah yeah season finale of mash and then oj simpson um <laughs> <laughs> running for the border <laughs> because people don't i mean and, and those those are likely to never be topped because people don't watch tv like no no anymore. i know i know no, so. nobody watches super bowl is probably the last thing that has any semblance of everybody watching something at the same time but, uh, you yeah, know, Japanese cinema is, you know, you guys are real. I mean, this is, this podcast is great. I mean, you guys, Kelby, I know you mentioned your grandmother in a couple of, you know, things even we talked about. You were very lucky to have her as a grandmother right? in terms of film, really. Yeah, that's actually why I wanted to pair this one with uh, with your episode, bringing you on, because I remembered, uh, well, for one, you know, we're, we're all Broken River brothers here and buddies and uh, of course, we were going to have you on at some point, but I uh, remembered a conversation that we were having about my grandmother and Oni Baba, mm. and I was like, oh, that we should talk about that. I'm going to watch that movie again. <laughs> and when you have somebody like that, I mean, uh, I, my mother and father were both big film buffs, but that's, that's the thing. It's like you really, and it's funny, you must have this experience, like you'll say something, something you'll tell, mention a movie to someone. And they'll be like, yeah, that was cool. Where'd you, well, I was eight and I saw it with my grandma. I say like I saw it with my mother. And they look at you like you're a Martian. Well, some of us are just lucky, dude. What can I tell you, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to be with Gus. That's how I want him to be with him. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, we watch, I mean, he's 11 months. So if I want to entertain him, yes, we do watch Sesame Street, of course. And we have, <laughs> well, Dis we yeah. have Disney Plus and all that kind of stuff too. But I, you know, as soon as he's, I don't know, seven or eight, like we're not going to do the whole, you know, oh, you can't watch R rated movies thing. Yeah, Cause yeah. I went through that. My, my mom was yeah, uh, an absolutely yeah. wonderful mother, but she was very protective and she didn't want me to see, you know, uh, so I have these kind of flashes of watching, uh, not watching, but walking past my dad, watching alien and seeing the chest burster come out and having no context for it. And just being like, what the fuck is like, that's even having, worse. <laughs> that, it is yeah. worse. It is worse. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so we're going to, we're going to, you know, it's already like, we don't do baby music in the car, which I don't know, it might be bad, but I'm just, I'm not, 
I can't no, do it. Right. I, so no, I mean, tell me if you disagree, Kelvin. I would say my mother had a few things. I mean, it's not like anything goes. He had a couple of the, but basically, and it was a very 70s upbringing and they were both film buffs, blah, blah, blah. I would say in general, this whole idea of age appropriate is so ridiculous. You gauge your own child. I mean, if you see you're watching something and right. it disturbs them, then obviously you're not going to force them. Not a clockwork orange. You're not going to force them to watch. <laughs> I'm not going to. Sh- I'm not going to show Gus irreversible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But until he's general, at least nine. Yeah, at least he's nine. Uh, but in general, it, this has gotten way out of. I think it's gotten way out of. It's, I mean, I raised Jewel that way, and he seems fine. You know. I mean. Yeah. Well, because kids know that it's fake. I mean, they they know that it's a movie. And I think that I think as people get older, they start to get a little superstitious and occult about what movies do to your brain. I think just as you get, you know, you get older, you get more conservative and you think like, oh, you know, kids can't get screen. I think I think a lot of it is like, you know, not every time, but if you're watching it with your kid. You're there. Yeah, right. And mm-hmm. they, so that's a safe, I don't know, whatever the word, a safety, a ballast. And if they have questions, which I remember asking sons, you answer them as best you can. Right. That's yeah. all. Yeah. You're not leaving yes. a kid out. Go watch, uh, you know, Irreversible. Have fun. Yeah. You're seven. Yeah, right. That's <laughs> <how> I, <you laughs> know? And then they come back and they're like, what, what happened? And you're like, well, when a man and a woman love each other very much. You hold her down in an underground tunnel <laughs> for 20 <laughs> minutes. For, for, yeah, Jesus Christ. That, you want to talk about movies that I've never revisited, even though I think that Irreversible is one of the most brilliant movies I've ever seen. He, yeah. never, he never quite got back to it with he like Enter the Void and Climax. I mean, Irreversible was that all that nasty energy was just perfectly channeled in that movie, right. but I've seen it once and I, I don't, I Me don't need too. to see it again. I'm I good. Me too. I never saw um, it again. No. But, but yeah, no, no the, the baby music thing, I can't, I can't do that. And I'm not going to do baby shows all the time. Some kids movies are pretty good though. We're revisiting oh, yeah. some Disney yeah. classics and I mean, like they're good, man. I mean, there was oh, even, yeah. uh, we watched Moana. That was good um oh yeah yeah no i agree emperor's new groove that's good um when that's a genuinely funny movie i got all the disney movies including a lot of the old classics watching them again as an adult i had to explain like peter pan you know like the the racial stuff it's like you look at it now some of it's like ridiculous what happens in peter pan oh the indians right is that what it is no yeah but the thing that really i you know like uh, you can't go wrong with um what's his name um Miyazaki I mean all of Miyazaki oh, oh yeah. yeah I got I've got yeah. HBO so I've got Japan, all those movies Japanese yeah. cinema one of the greats yeah. one of the greats of them all yeah. oh dude I watched the documentary uh of Miyazaki he's one of my heroes now oh, he's yeah. such a grouchy asshole just all the, all the time and he's like but I love the work ethic because it's something that I don't actually have it's something that I want to incorporate more into my life so when I see him uh, talking about modern filmmakers, you know, they lack discipline. They don't, you know, mm. like you just, you sit down, you put your head down and you do the work and, you know, and it's, he's in his house by himself. It's it's snowing outside and this filmmaker comes over. He's like, did you have to bring a camera? Oh, okay, fine. He's just smoking cigarettes <laughs> and drawing a picture of a caterpillar over and over again until he gets it right. Cause his, oh, yeah. his final movie, his return, uh, 
it's a really funny story with Miyazaki actually, because he left studio Ghibli and it shut down mm. and he passed the torch ostensibly to his son. Mm. And then he saw the movie that his son made and he came out of retirement because he said, that's just not acceptable. <laughs> and his, son, his son's like 50, 60 years old. Something You're like right. that. And it's just shit. like never good enough for dad, you know, oh like, my God. Yeah. but it's, it's great. You have HBO, right? So you can, yeah, yeah. you can, you can find I know, it. Man. It's, right. it's a good, it's a good little hour, hour and 10 minute documentary. Okay. I'll, I'll look for that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, no. He's one of the, one of the absolute masses. No, I do. I mean, we watched them over and over, over and over. I, I hadn't seen them all. I mean, once I saw, I'd seen one or two and then I got them all as Jewel was growing. And that's something with any kid. And they're hardly like, they all kids love them, but you can watch them at any age. And they're just brilliant movies. Yeah. I mean, oh, and I he, just, uh, God, I just now appreciated uh, my neighbor Totoro fully. Like I always thought, I was like, yeah, this is good. It's fun, whatever. But um, it's one of the like least exciting of the movies. Mm-hmm. And I was watching it with Rowan recently and was like, this is basically like if any of these have subconsciously influenced my work, it's like my neighbor Totoro because it's just like experience. It's nothing happening. It's Mm. just like people doing shit. Yeah. What I I like about Miyazaki, there's another scene in this documentary that's great. There's footage of him and I can't remember what movie they were working on, but he's, he's watching, I guess, whatever the animation equivalent of the dailies is. And he's he's watching a character and he's like, okay, when someone's running and they turn around, they don't move like that. They move more like this. Uh And the attention to detail is crazy. And you don't even notice it in the films because it's so naturalistic and it's so smooth. But that's what makes them good. It's happening, you know, subconsciously in our brains. We're watching this and we're, you know, it feels right. But every single little you know, every 24 frames per second, he's looking at it and he's saying right here, this is where you got it wrong. Like shoulders yeah. don't, shoulders don't slope like that. When you're, when you're stabbing, you stab more like this. <laughs> yeah. So just a complete, a complete genius and a total asshole. And, you know, I just, I love that grumpy curmudgeonly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you've earned it, right. If you've earned it, I think if a lot of creative it, right. people are just assholes yeah. and, and that's no fun. But like, yeah. if you're an asshole in service of creating, you know, princess mononoke then i think it's okay you gotta pass you definitely gotta pass right yeah no yeah, right. Totally agree. yeah. Um, well we're getting it's getting a little bit late here i think that'll wrap it up for this episode so scott thanks for visiting you're always extremely insightful we we have uh, really great guests on this show but it's always good to get someone like you who knows a shitload about movies to talk about movies so thank you for your time oh I, right anytime and it's just good to talk with you guys again. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has been a minute.